and now we're going around and around and around. And suddenly I felt closer to God than I had been since the last time my mama whooped my tail. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and opinions expressed are mine and those of the guest. So today's guest is a man by the name of Nick Baskerville. He is a lieutenant in a fire department up in Northern Virginia. He's also an instructor and a storyteller, two things that go hand in glove. We had a great conversation while we were out in Tulsa at the IFSA conference and wanted to share that with you. So without further ado, enjoy. Nick Baskerville, welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Thanks for taking the time out of your uh, out of your weekend to sit down and, and shoot the bull with me and, and chat a little bit about the fire service and some of the things that you're doing that are, you know, uh, that are connected to the fire service. And, um, but before we dig into storytelling with a purpose, mm-hmm. um, which is the, the reason I asked you to sit down because firefighters are storytellers and there's, there's an art form there. And I want to talk about that. But before we do that, okay, why don't you share with us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, what your background is, that kind of stuff. Sure. So, um, name's Nick Baskerville. I'm in the fire service in Northern Virginia. Really got into the fire service by accident, but we'll start off with the fact that I'm a military brat. Uh, my mom was in the Army. My uncle was in the in the Marines. And then I, uh, I decided, hey, I'm going to go into the military, too. And it's like, oh, that's cute. You should probably go into the Air Force. That's probably a better fit for you in this understanding some things about you. And they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. Uh, so I did 10 years active duty in the Air Force, uh, and I hated it. No, I didn't hate the Air Force itself. It, that was awesome. I was like, I was seventeen, uh, eighteen, in Japan with not a that bill to like, my name. That sounds like trouble. <laughs> oh, there's I, there are a lot of stories I have. Very few that I will tell from that time period in my life. <laughs> um, and so then I did the different assignments, and um, and 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 I think we talked earlier about how I was in IT. And I just really didn't like it. So you you did mention that you sort of had a dual career, though. So what was your original MOS? Uh, so it was an information technology troubleshooting. So I was tech control is what it's called. And so with that, uh, you know a little bit about all the IT stuff in order to troubleshoot larger problems. So okay. if you have a phone here, like we're in Tulsa, and it was supposed to reach all the way over to Germany, and at some point it didn't work, I was the person who figured out where. So the phone, the satellite system, the microwave system, the satellite itself, some wires, I got it down to a particular point, and then someone who specializes in a particular area actually fixed it, troubleshooted, whatever else. Right. And I realized pretty well that IT was not it for me. I hated it. Uh, one of my saving graces is that I was actually um, uh, a member of the all-Air Force wrestling team. Oh, nice. Right, and so and for those of you who, who may not know, the all-Air Force sports is pretty uh, pretty phenomenal if you if you're ranked in the nation or you're doing pretty well that becomes your job in some sort of olympic sport so you go there and whether it be wrestling or table tennis or whatever it is you're good you do that for a few months and that's all you do you normally go to a national championship you try to vie for like a world team stuff like that nice now if you're ranked in the nation or in the world you actually do that in the air force you do that for a solid two years that's it all you're doing, we would wrestle, we would practice six days a week, two or three times a day. Uh, 
I, uh, I was out in Colorado Springs when this was going on. It's Olympic Training Center. Right. We had access to that. You'd eat all this great food and their coaches and all Let's the Let's be things. clear. Air Force Chow <laughs> is probably pretty good anyway. <laughs> well, this was even better than that. <laughs> and it was actually nutritious. Nice. So just go back on you here real quick. Did you wrestle in high school? I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. You must have had some background in it, right? Yeah. So what happened was... Uh, I I was in high school in Belgium, and I was on the basketball team and on the track team. We moved to Germany, and then apparently uh, it's actually difficult to get on that basketball team. So I got I didn't even make the cut; wasn't even there. But track was still coming, and I was still pretty good at placing. And I, my friend, uh, wound up being one of my best friends to this day, Fred. He was like, you know, if you really want to get in shape, if you really want to get in shape for, for track, you should come wrestle. And I'd never done it before because I'd always been playing basketball. So I said, sure, I'll go out and try this. Man. Suckers born every day. Yeah, every day. <laughs> Nobody works <laughs> as hard as wrestlers. Uh, but it, it has served me so well. It has served me so well throughout the years. And so um, so that's how I got into wrestling. And then you know I went to the Air Force. And then I heard, wow, if, if I'm on this team, then I'm not at work. And the better I do, the longer I'm not at work. I'd rather go to the Olympic Training Center and have somebody slam me on the ground than go to my job. That's that's the level of that's distaste. the level of like I don't like what I'm doing. Right. Uh, and and so yeah yeah so if you if you if you do really well, you make it in the nation and or in ranked in the world, and you're gearing up for the Olympics. Like for two years prior to that, that's all you do. You're you're doing that with the expectation you're going to be a world champion, Olympic champion, or you're going to get your face on a box of Wheaties. Yes. Um, your listeners can't see me, but if they could, want- they they would realize that my face has never been on a box of Wheaties. Like there's there's no association there. Uh, but I was good enough to be there, and I actually got stationed in Colorado, so that allowed me to continue to train even on the off season. So and what stuff like what that. weight class did you roll at? Uh, so I thought I was going to be 132 pounds. Uh, but then I realized, on average, people lose 20 pounds to get to their weight class, mm. and I wasn't losing that much weight. And so then Did you I, just didn't have it on your frame to lose? Uh, no. I, I tried to get down to 125, and I got down to like 127. My body was like, for real? Mm. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I'm sorry. I started off thinking I was going to do 149. And then realized I needed to go down to 135 in order to be competitive. And so that's where I was. But it's it's a pretty competitive weight range. Somewhere between 135 and 149, that tends to be the most number of people kind of stacked into there. So it was really competitive. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, I'm wrestling against people who are, like, awesome. And then the, the flip side of that is typically for wrestling – Half the people in a particular weight class who's on a world Olympic team probably come from the military. Mm. So even though we're sitting there and we're fighting against each other and duking out for our armed forces uh, tournament, when you look at the people who are ranked, half of them are probably from uh, from the military. A number of them are in the top two or three. Two legit competitors. Yeah. So I, I, I did that, and that was like – this is awesome. This is great. And then, of course, I did some other assignments and said, okay, at some point, I'm, I'm really going to have to get out and find, like, the real job. And then that's when I talked to a friend. He's like, you know, you teach CPR and stuff. You should you should go 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 be a firefighter. Don't be an EMT. And I was like, well, why not an EMT? Well, EMTs get shot at. Well, he's from New York. So, like, everybody gets shot at. 
So <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I'll have to recalibrate that. So I went and volunteered in Prince George's County, Maryland, and I did a ride along and I was hooked. I'm sitting on top of a fire engine. It is cold. It is, I'm wet and I'm just, I'm just in civilian clothes and I'm helping to put hose back on there. And the guy, he looks at me, he says, man, I am so sorry. We don't ruin everything. And I'm looking, are you serious? This is awesome. Where can I get some more of this? Right. So I started volunteering, and the thing I wanted to do from volunteering, uh, particularly in the fire service, and actually like 70%, uh, you know, 70% of the, the fire service made up of volunteers. Uh, but I wanted to do that as a way of, is just the thing I want to do for my career. Kind of uh, test drive it a little bit. Yeah, and so, and I was still single anyway, so I was a live-in for a while, and, and got used to, okay, I got I got up, woken up at 2 in the morning to go on this stub toe call and i'm still willing to continue to do this okay this this is going to be the job for me and so that's what i did and so i uh, i had a spreadsheet at 23 different places where i was applying for right and uh, and all there in the dc maryland virginia area a bunch of places i'd put in for and i did the spreadsheet to keep track of where i was at i was down to maybe the last I had like four offers, five offers from places and still in the process of one of them. So I'm going through and uh, I'm doing the workout at one of the places in Maryland and I'm doing the the uh, forcible entry, you know, the where you're hitting it with the sledge and just turn, turn, just yeah. hitting it. Oh, yep. And, uh, and was then, it like the, the Kaiser sled type? No, no, not the, the Kaiser prop, sled. But just but, like the wall prop? Yeah, the wall prop mm-hmm. where they got the buzzer at the end yeah. and you've hit it enough time and pressure. So I'm pop, pop, pop. And then I hear a pop that did not come from me hitting the thing because it came from my knee. Mm. And so I stopped for a minute and I fell down. I got back up because, you know, I'm in the middle of a process. I just, I'll just walk it off. It'll just get all better. But when it's dangling there, it's mm. not getting better. And then mm-hmm. it seized up. And it was not bending. That sounds like a torn meniscus. That's exactly no, not just torn, torn and twisted. Mm-hmm. Like the doctor looked at it, it's like I'm not, I'm not sure how we got to this point, but that's that's interesting. Yeah. Ugh. So I had I got surgery, uh, got that all fixed up, and of course, as I went back through the process, you know, number of departments were like, "Man, sorry about that, but if you start from the very beginning again, we'll let you try." Mm. You know, and I'm trying to time this with my getting out there to the Air Force. I'm like, th- that's not, I got money saved up, but, you know, that's not how I envision using this money. So the department that I'm with now, they were the only ones who were like, well, look, if you pass the physical and can do the physical agility again, then. So tell me about that hiring process. Is it a, uh, like a, an interview process, a written exam, or and then the physical, or how? what's that kind of, what's it look like? Yeah, so in um, in, in our area, in the DMV, you know, uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, the typical process is, is you put in your application and then you get chosen to go take a test, which is mo- most everyone. Uh, when you say written chosen, test. they kind of have, they build a pool of candidates and then that pool of candidates goes takes the written. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, so, and, it, and it varies. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it was still competitive then. It's like yeah. if you wanted to be a D.C. firefighter, God help you. It easily would take you five years to get mm. on. The average for the for for our area was about a year, year and a half at the time. It may have changed since then, but no, normally about at a year, year and a half, you had something that said, "Hey, we want you," or you didn't make it. So you start off with the written test, 
So that pairs you down. Then normally after that, you have some sort of physical agility. Some people use seat pads. Some people didn't. But some sort of you show me that you can physically do the job. After that, then in vi different variations, you had everything from, uh, okay, this is when you do your physical to make sure that everything's working all right for you. You had the psychological test. You had the background check and everything to go along with that. Uh, if you made it through all that, then there's varying levels of interviews. Some of them just had a panel interview and then the final interview. Some of them just had the final interview kind of varying from there. Then you got a job offer. And then that's the end of it there. The uh, There's tend to be a lot of movement, particularly from people there in the first five years for where they're going to trying to get to. So like mm -hmm. if you're, if you know that DC is going to take you five years, it's, un it's not uncommon that someone may work for one of the other local departments. As kind of a stair step type of situation. Yeah, but then it also varies. Like PG County, I mean, they run fire, they run lots of fire, and so then lots of work. So you could not be P Prince George County. Yeah. Okay. Prince Prince George's County. Heaven help me if I have offended anyone from the great <laughs> state of Maryland in the shortcut that I happen to use. <laughs> But it, it's very, very busy, and it's amazing that it's so busy for a place that has a combination system. Mm -hmm. Normally, places that busy are that they've gone all career already, but they they still have a a volunteer system that is still, I mean, it's still up and moving, and they run calls, um, and so you you there's it's not uncommon that there's movement between the different parts or whatever, and as you're trying to sort out where you want to go, and so for me, getting out of the military, like I'd already done basic training. And then I volunteered, and so I did the whole volunteer recruit school, and I'd gotten all the way up through that firefighter one and two, hazmat ops, hazmat tech, uh, officer one, instructor one, DPO. And I was like, I got one more recruit school of any sort in me. After that, if, if me getting a job takes longer than two weeks, I don't want it. So when I got into this department, I was like, I'm good. Either this thing is really going to work out. Or I'm, I have got to find a whole new career altogether. So I've been there uh, 17 years now. Nice. And uh, so 20 years over overall in the fire service, it was it was 90. I remember it because it was just before uh, the big uh, the 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 big uh, LODD up in Worcester. Uh, I had came on and I was trying to sort out all of like what was happening and going on. And now I look back at it, all the case studies and things like that. And so now it kind of puts it in context, like what really happened. But I was kind right. of you're talking about the Worcestershire cold storage. Yes. Uh, and so, um, so yep, 17 years. Uh, I do hazmat. Uh, I've done tech rescue training before, uh, but I just had trouble trying to keep up with it. In my department, I'm a hazmat specialist. So it's just a lot of stuff to keep in my head. And, uh, and I, I'm out at the training academy now. So I, I oversee, we have what's called advanced training. Our, our training department is broken up into folks who are doing just the basic level, so for career and volunteer. So firefighter one, firefighter two, hazmat ops, the EVOC, things like that, that we expect for people in our organization to have. Then there's one just for EMS training. They take care of EMTB, um, ALS training, and then also reoccurring training and CMEs and off-schedule stuff. And then I'm in the advanced training section and so there we take care of anything that you would have that would have been above and beyond. So I take care of uniform rank classes. So the officer series, instructor series, we have a homegrown leadership program that we use there to help people get ready for the next rank or just be really good where they happen to be. 
uh, let's see what else, uh, NIMS, uh, NFA classes. And so I, as I'm constantly looking just for different things that what are along those lines, what would help people improve? We have, um, so we also have in there the DPO and the aerial. We also have a whole tech rescue section, which, uh, you know, a number of them happen to be out here on the committee helping with the tech rescue book that that's actually going on. So that's pretty cool. And that is my life. It is, uh, it's office work and I'm okay with that. Um, I've got two daughters. Not, I mean, no, the youngest is eight. The oldest is 25. So she's not really all too worried about how often I make it home. <laughs> there is that. Uh, but baby girl, uh, Evan, everybody knows baby girl. You know, she she has expectations of me. It's like you look That's, just every so often. I expect to see you home. Yeah. I have to have a long conversation with her. Look, yes, I'm leaving for the weekend, but I will be back. It'll be okay. Well, if you're older than like 25, gosh, she's this is like an only child essentially for her, right? So uh, yes, so mom and dad are her world. Yes, yes, she That's gets plenty deal. plenty attention. So she has an older. It's like this this cool part where she has an older sister and it's cool. But at the end of the day, she's not sharing clothes. <laughs> right. There's nothing she's sharing. She's it's attention is is all for her. And of course, my my mom, she's retired from the military, retired lieutenant colonel, and uh, that that's a grandbaby. Mm-hmm. She has a part time job just so she can get stuff for her grandbaby. <laughs> Oh, that's it. Well, I think that's one of the privileges of being a grandparent that you get to spoil, get to spoil them grandkiddos. That's the privilege you have. And, uh, you know, you wear them out or, or you get them spun up and send them home. <laughs> so being in a, there's a lot of, I mean, I know a lot of guys get really torqued out about staff work, right? But there's a lot of, there's a lot of upsides to it. I think this is a, a really interesting part of the conversation for you and I. We talk about, you know, this being in a classroom and training and, you know, there's, there's this idea that there's a model that we use in the fire service, which is PowerPoint, right? Cause it's a very simple tool to produce training, to deliver to large volumes of people. It's easy. You can put a lot of information in it, blah, blah, blah. But every one of us knows, and I think there's actually research that speaks to the fact that PowerPoint is the least effective mechanism for training people and teaching people. So it's the most convenient on one end, but the least effective tool on the other. Well, uh, what, and what I would tell you that is, it, I don't think it's so much the least effective; it is how we use it, which Ooh, so is not what very do you mean by effective. That? And, and so, you know, there's a there's a TED talk that I've seen. There's some other stuff research. There's PowerPoint, and and I teach this in Instructor One, and I reinforce this in Instructor Two that PowerPoint is a training aid. It is meant to be in addition to something you're doing to get a point across. It's never meant to be used in the way that we do where there's paragraphs of information sitting on the on the board and then people are reading or you're reading it. Right. So, for example. That's, well, not to cut you off. That's been one of my biggest criticisms is to have a, an instructor get up and read a screen to me, Right. It's, it, this is going to sound harsh, but it's really disrespectful to the student mm-hmm. to read a PowerPoint. Anyway, it's just a it's well, super pet peeve of mine. Well, and, and, so, and it, it, there again, and one of the things that why I really enjoy my position, I, I happen to teach a lot of the Instructor 1, Instructor 2 in, in my organization. And so I, in there, I'm trying to, if you will, reset the culture for like how how teaching is, is done. How do right. we engage people more as a versus just, I'm going to talk to you and then somehow it'll absorb into your head. 
and then it'll just work because right. th- that never works. Right. Uh, but so when it comes to PowerPoint, some of the things that, have, that, that were talked about is it changes, uh, like what colors you happen to use affects how effective it is. Uh, putting the pictures there, how the things come up there. So sometimes people, they, they put animation on there where things kind of fade in and out. Mm-hmm. But then they go gung-ho, and by the end of it, you're like, did I ride a roller coaster ride, or was I here to learn something? <laughs> yeah, it's today? bang, pop, boom, pow, things sliding in from the outside, and like, it, but the message gets lost. Right. So there's there's different colors. There's different ways it present. There's also a limited amount of how much is supposed to come up there. I think from the TED Talk that, uh, that, that I watched, it talked about having no more than five uh, three to five items and it's only based on how how far or how much that it happens or like where on the screen it happens to be or instead of a whole complete sentence to only put part of it or a word because if you put a complete sentence on a powerpoint someone's going to automatically start reading it yes but now they're paying attention to the powerpoint they're not paying attention to you you are the instructor you are the deliverer of information and so that's what i mean by People, the PowerPoint has a place and it's useful, but people aren't using it effectively. Right. So it's interesting. I think to go back to the the idea that it's the worst mechanism for learning, I think used in its raw form as a uh, just a place for the lecture to live. And then I get up and I just lecture and I read off this PowerPoint. And I don't use it through with the fidelity that it really should be used. Then it becomes useless. Right. right. It's like a, you know, if you don't know how to handle a sword. Okay, I'm gonna speak your language. If I try to shoot a double leg takedown, right? <laughs> but my but I put my head on the inside, you're gonna choke me out, right? You're gonna drop into a guillotine, and I'm done for, right? So you have to it, the the tool is good only in as much as you know how to execute it, right? Yeah, it can be a powerful adjunct when it's used correctly. So the the other piece of this though, we talk about it shaping the message, and you uh, are you have a lot of focus on storytelling, and this is when I. Can uh, I go down this path here and talk about how do we use the art of storytelling to help make the classroom, particularly in the fire service? So we know firefighters love to tell stories. Mm-hmm. So what what makes a good story? So there's there's the simple answer is that it's there's a beginning, middle, and end, and it there's a point to it. A, a point to that attaches to whatever it is you're trying to teach. And so I, I typically, for most of my classes that I teach, I normally start off with a story. It's three minutes. Five minutes is like max, but three minutes, two to three minutes at the most. But that story is related to whatever we have to go over that entire hour. And I use it as a callback because if you tell a story effectively, it's very vivid. I tell people it is the original virtual reality tool. Where told properly, you've transported someone from where they are to where you want them to be, and you get them to see what you want them to see. There's a thing called neurocoupling, which means if I'm telling you the story effectively, my brain waves and your brain waves actually match up. And I think that's really significant because if they're matched up, we're seeing the same things. And from a leadership standpoint, if you can see what I see, you can see my vision. So your your intent, your leader's intent can really be conveyed in a very... Uh, clear and concise mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And when you figure that people, you know, before there were books and schools and PowerPoint, there were stories as part of teaching. And that's why not only is it something that we happen to do a lot in the fire service, that's also what makes it very effective. Again, used properly because we've all been in class 
And after 10 minutes of listening to a story that we don't know what, I, I don't know what this has to do with a fire hose, but <laughs> thank you. And it's not related to anything. It's not related to me. Uh, so all that is gone. Yeah. Well, we have a tendency to, to tell war stories, right? Right. And, and the, so there again is what was the point of your story? You know, what was the, I, it for as from an instructional point of view, if I'm going to tell you a story, there's some key thing that I need to kind of be stuck in your head. And that's why I told you the story. Or as an instructor, I know that there's um, something that is very, very hard to understand or grasp. So uh, I teach hazmat ops is one of the classes I teach. And in there, we talk about Ludwig Benner's behavior, model of behavior uh, for hazardous material incidents. It is long. It is, okay, first is the stress. And then there's different types of stress. And then there's the breach. And the, right? But it doesn't, when I say those words, it doesn't really conjure up an image or anything. So the thing I do is I, I have a little, um, little figure I've upgraded. I used to just, like borrow one of baby girl's little toys, but I, <laughs> I got a little action figure, right? I got, um, what, Anakin. You know, back before he was all turned bad from Star Wars, right? So I got him. <laughs> okay. And then I take a a uh, bag of popcorn, and I pop it, but I don't open it. And so I sit there, and what I'll do is I'll pull out a table, get everybody to come up, come back. And so the story I created is Anakin's out here, and, you know, I know the real reason why he turned evil. has nothing to do with anything you've seen in any of the nine Star Wars movies. This is what had happened. And so I go through a whole thing where I have Anakin, I have the, I have the pop, bag of popcorn, it becomes a container, and I go through the stages of, of, uh, of that behavioral model by opening it up and talking about the different things that kind of walk through there. So there's a story. The point is this is where this at. At any point, you can kind of stop things. Some additional learning things besides that is memory. Many people think of memory as the I got to get to that one spot in somebody's head. But the way memory really works is the more of your senses you're involved, the more places it's in your head, the better chance you have the remembering thing. So now I've got people up and walking. So it, it creates movement. I, I, I have something visual for them. They hear me talking. There's even the smell of the popcorn now. So these all becomes cues so that when the person has to call back to recall the information later, they hit those cues. Hmm. And when they hit those cues, they hit the rest of the information. It's like an acronym. We all know what RECIO is, or most of us know what RECIO is. But in, in remembering RECIO, you remember words attached with each one of those things. And so that's what I'm trying to create, these little memory points for people that when they remember that, they remember a whole list of things underneath it. I love that. There's a group of people that do memory competitions. Yes. And they, they talk about building a memory castle yes. or memory house or whatever, right? And part of it is they picture in their mind a structure that they are comfortable with, their own home or whatever, and they walk into the living room mm -hmm. and they attach a certain thing they're trying to memorize to that room. And then when someone asks them to recall that set of information, they, they walk into their memory palace and they go, oh, okay, front room. I see my couch on the couch is X, Y, Z. And they, then they recall the story because they've hung it into a, in a scaffolding yes. that kind of gives it structure, which is interesting because that's exactly what you're talking about doing with these, these memory cues, right? Mm -hmm. Smell popcorn. I'm going to be thinking about Anakin Skywalker. Well, okay. I don't even know what I'm going to be thinking about. You got to tell me the rest of the story. I need to know about this popcorn. <laughs> What's the story? <laughs> and so what, what it is, is, is I go through the different stages uh, with the popcorn there. So 
stress is the fact that the, you have this container, uh, that you have this bag of popcorn because they got the heat stress. Because when I talk about the stress that a container can get, heat, cold, mechanical. Okay. All right. Well, and then, hey, what kind of stress is it? Oh, it's heat. Yeah. It got the heat stress, and this is what happened to it. So then I open it up slightly. This is where you've got something that's opened up, and okay, what kind is it? Is it... Is it opening that is it a closing that opened up is it a tear is it a rip and how does all work and then of course i start emptying out the context because now we get into the engulfment phase like also the impinging phase and so i just kind of carry along throughout that whole thing okay uh, talking about that all the way and then i start talking about well if i wanted to really protect anakin at what point would i still be able to do that despite the incidents that have gone on Okay. Because in that understanding the behavior model means that when you get there and you see, you know what? The popcorn has already surrounded him. He's a goner. Too late. But if you get there, like, oh, it's just open up. I've got a chance. And that's part of that decision-making model that you're doing there when you arrive there on the incident scene for right. the hazmat thing. Oh, I like that. I like that. That's cool. And I, and right now, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I have a visual. Right. Right? I can picture cargo tanker, some kind of liquid you know, LPG tanker being impinged on by fire or being in a car crash or whatever, whatever event takes place that stresses the container mm -hmm. and then the subsequent effects with popcorn spilling out. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. I love that. That's a great, that's yeah. a great tool to use. So I think that's, you know, we talk about using these stories. It just takes a, you really have to, an instructor has to invest a lot of energy in, it, there's a lot of creativity in that, right? It takes a tremendous amount of creativity. So is there a tool or a, a trick that you use to come up with content, come up with a story to tell to reach your end goal? So storytelling as a whole is an individual conveying with one or more people at a concept or idea that has, like I said, beginning, middle, and there's some inciting incident, so something that kind of starts the story. There's some level of conflict, and you need conflict because otherwise it wouldn't. It's just, it's just a documentary. It's just, oh, you're just talking. Why am I paying attention? And at the end of it, there's got to be some sort of resolution. Like, okay, it, mm. it's finished. And as, and I guess I use resolution loosely. For most stories told, particularly from the American society, there's a resolution. What I've found out here in the last year or so as I've researched more about storytelling, it's not uncommon perhaps in other countries where maybe there's not a resolve or you don't it doesn't end on a happy ending. Mm -hmm. We're used to typically stories ending on the man, you went through crap and everything else, but at least you you've made it or something. There's sometimes they lived happily ever after. Right. And where sometimes is this and they died. That's the story. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, that's not a, your typical American story. They're like, no, there's just got to be some glimmer of hope uh, that happens to go there. So um, I, I explain all that because storytelling is that's everything from personal narrative, me taking a story out of my own life and then putting it in there, uh, a folk tale. Uh, historical thing, teaching, you know, Black History Month will be next month. And so it's pretty common to have reenactors who are telling a story as if they're a character mm. or as if they were there, even though they weren't. Right. Uh, yeah, parables, you know, a lot of that's using many of the religious terms. You have um, you have things like uh, Aesop's fables. So everyone who's ever heard of the tortoise and the hare is a simple example. That was one. Of, but there is a point, something to be kind of learned at the end of that. Mm. When I think of what story am I using? One of the first things I say is, what is the point that I need to get across? 
So for me, there's very rarely a time that I'm in class and a story just comes up. If I'm telling a story, it's because I've looked at the lesson plan beforehand. I found a story that matches what I need to, to convey. And then I write a little note to myself in the lesson plan. So I remembered there's the story. And so sometimes it may vary. Like if I, if I talk about a subject and people seem to get it, then maybe I don't need it. But if you have the kind of, the, oh, I don't think they're getting it or this isn't making sense or jiving, the story becomes one of the tools that I use into there. When it comes to remembering story, it, you know, the ones about my life are about my life. Right. That's just me remembering parts of my life. Right. And it's and I think it's interesting where you talked about the not the scaffolding, but the idea that you build a mansion and that memory trick. Mm. I tell stories and scenes. So I built out all my stories where things take into place. So, well, let's say if I'm talking about a story where me and baby girl are doing homework. So when I start off, I say, there I am at home sitting at my inner row townhouse in the kitchen. It was morning, and this is so there. So from now, I'm just reliving the moment, but I and I can see that. Right. But it doesn't have to be extreme detail. Like I don't have to describe the floor and the refrigerator and everything else because someone else's mind will fill that in. And at the end of the day, I don't care if you pick the right refrigerator or the right looking townhouse. What I care is that you've walked in the door with me in that townhouse and you're now sitting in the kitchen. Now I'm going to deliver the content that's in there. And so the thing with a personal narrative story for how I have so many scenes and normally three to five scenes probably for the stories I tell because there's somewhere between five, ten minutes when I'm doing things actually on a stage or for a show or something like that mm-hmm. um, where I have built that stuff out easy enough for me to remember and I transport people to different places. It helps give them focus and then I give them content in there. So it's similar in a way to what people are doing with their, with the memory. So you talked about personal narrative. So before we move away from that, a lot of times when we are where we see this most for us, I think is a firefighter. I mean, there's, there's obviously the kitchen table stories, right? That's one thing, but I think where it's really, really relevant and people are like, I really want to share something about myself. I don't know how, and it's in the interviewing process, right? Either as a would be firefighter uh, in the beginning of your career, or when you're in a promotional process down the road and you're like, I think these people know me, but I gotta, I gotta share who I am with this group of people. And I want it to be uh, authentic and unique and interesting. Mm -hmm. But I got to, but I got to convey a message, right? right? I, you know, I am the captain you're seeking, right? I am a quality candidate. So what is it? What do you think about that? What does that look like? So one of the things, and, uh, and, and I believe this just for the whole like assessment center process, like if you're starting like a few months before the assessment center, good luck to you. Too late. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, because people don't do public speaking well unless they do it often. What I tell people is at least six months, but really a year. You need to start figuring out answers to things. Let's face it. When you're sitting there doing it, in, in, it there in the interview, at some point, you know, something connected to your mission statement, your values, um, something along those lines are going to come up. Don't wait until weeks before. All right. If I know these are my values for my department, have I done something in my life that matches that now? So you start kind of writing that out. What have I done? So now you can start building. So now you can get it down to like a, a minute or two minutes, just a few minutes to be able to do that. And if, and I, and I would tell you if, if well, there, there is a, a book called Storyworthy. 
It's it's by a guy named Matthew Dix. That's his real name. Don't worry. If you type it in, you're not going to go <laughs> off to some porno site. It's That's not what you're going to get. So he has this thing called Homework for Life. He even did a TED Talk on it. Essentially what it is is every day you write down a story from your life, something that happened that day. It's just, one two, it's just the start of it. It's not the full thing, just something you can kind of go back to later. And what I love about that practice is it makes you more aware of what's going on in your life. There are memories that I have captured in my life that I that probably would have just glossed over. The, how that fits into this idea of the interview, there's probably things you have done to show every value, every mission statement, everything you've ever been connected to, but you didn't take the time to record it, and it lost your mind, and if you waited longer than the day, it is gone. But you've probably done that. So it starts off with the what happened today. So if it, you you just write once a day, hey, here are some things, odd, odd things, interesting things that happened. And from there, you can start building up, okay, well, what is that story? Uh, one of the key things for, for that has to happen for your main character is this transformation. So one of the things you look for for an interesting story is how am I a different person? What did I learn? Yeah, what did I learn? What did I learn? Why am I doing something differently? I had this thought, but now. And so wherever that changes, that's where your story happens to be. Mm. And that can be the thing that you see there for answering your questions. So that when they ask you, uh, uh, give me an example of one of your strengths. Well, at some point in your life, you realize I'm good at this. What was that point? Right. At what point did you realize I'm good at this? Or what point did... And then you can just build just a little bit before it, a little bit after it, and you've got your story. You know, name one of your weaknesses. Now, you know, and, and you know, in, in case the people in the audience don't know this, whenever you talk about one, you will talk about a weakness. Because anyone who says, I don't have a weakness, that's arrogance. <laughs> and that is something that will get picked up in an interview like, oh, you don't. You don't have any problems. Okay, we'll just move you on down the list. And so what But what you do with your weakness is you also talk about what are you doing to improve it. So that means right. that at some point when you realize I'm not good at this, again, your turning point, you now, all right, so now that I realize I'm not good at this, this is what I started doing. So here's your change again. So you keep finding your moments of change. That's where your stories are going to be. Then it's just simply a matter of practicing keeping them down to whatever time limit you have for your interview. All right. I like it. I think that journaling practice is fascinating. It's, my my wife is very good at journaling. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, <clears throat> our history as a couple is well documented. <laughs> However, <laughs> only from her perspective, Ooh, right? Uh-huh. So unfortunately, we'll be talking about something and she's like, well, this is how it was. And I'm like, hmm. I don't remember like that. And she goes, well, I have it written down. You know, I, do do as, you have a record? <laughs> as as the saying goes from Aesop's fable, the uh, not, I think it's Aesop. Aesop has an example of it. Uh, but the story goes, I think, from an African uh, saying or whatever, where the story will always favor the hunter until the learn, lion learns how to write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to tell my wife that. <laughs> so it's interesting as a as a company officer, I started using a Microsoft is called OneNote. Yes. So for me, I'm like oh, journaling. It's a nightmare. I can't do it. I've tried on and off over the years. Interestingly, I have a I have a journal that I started when I was in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. and it's basically it was uh it was just my daily op orders and and with few notes in it, mm-hmm. but. 
I go back and reflect on that. I'll open it up every once in a while. I'll take a peek at it. And I'm like, oh, and the memories flood back in. Yes. And it's, and it's just these little things. Like we went to the armory, checked out weapons, drew this, drew that. And then we went on this hump, you know, we did 20 mile hump through the mountains, whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah. And suddenly the stories come back, the players come back. And I remember all that. So I've tried on and off over the years to journal and uh, not very successfully. So interestingly though, when I became a company officer, I decided, Hey, I need to, I need to maintain an awareness of things that happen. Cause I asked my wife, I don't have the best memory for stuff. So I'm like, when a, an interesting thing happened, that's noteworthy. I go into one note, Hey, on this day we ran this call, this interesting thing happened. And, uh, and now when something goes sideways and my boss goes, Hey, well, what happened? And I go, well, what had happened was, <laughs> and and I know that because I wrote it down and I didn't write like a book on it. I just wrote a few notes so that my brain would connect back to what the event was. And I've asked, you know, um, I've asked my guys to do the same thing. Hey, we go on an event. I mean, this looks like this person was really angry or something went bad. Hey, write down your thoughts on this so that if it does come up, we ha- you have a record of what you were feeling at this time in this place. So really an interesting exercise for a lot of reasons. The ability to go back and say, hey, this is this, we are really poor historians, really. Mm-hmm. And so being able to go back and say, this is the story as it happened on that day weeks ago is really powerful. Yeah. So it, one, I use OneNote too. I've been using it since 2015. And this is where I actually, I jot down all of my thoughts. So I have so many different notebooks. So I have one just for storytelling, right? I have one just for being an officer and all this stuff. I have super duper big ideas so i put it there because i only get like fractions at a time but over the course of six months i realized oh this is the entirety of it yeah well for for somebody who doesn't know one note allows you to keep different journals like different books right under different categories so it's super cool for organizing your thoughts and ideas plus it's super portable so it can be it's just an app on your phone so you could be in the line at the grocery store and have an idea and be like oh and start you know jump on your phone and write some stuff down and heck you can even add pictures and stuff right and and for me that's normally how it starts there's an ideal or whatever so i'll jot something down there and then I have my OneNote connected to my computer. So later I'll go back and build out the story. Right. I've been yeah, doing, and it syncs. Yes. So and, it's right there. And I've been doing storytelling since. Um, and so when I say I'm doing storytelling, my version is typically the personal narrative. So that means that I go on stage and for about five to ten minutes I tell a story from my personal life. It's normally based on a theme and there's no notes when I do it. And back in 2015, I made the – I said – I'm going to do it once a month. Once a month, I'm going to find a stage somewhere, and I'm going to go and tell the story. Where's an example of, like, where you find a stage at? Oh, well, so in the D.C. area, D, actually D.C., Maryland, Virginia, it is, so I, my, my blog, Storytelling on Purpose, I actually did it because I started finding out that there are all of these places to do it. The very first place mm-hmm. I went to was a moth slam. So the moth is actually an NPR and they have people telling their well, there's love the moth. So they have it in D.C. They have two shows that they run now. One's oh, like that's Thursday, really... and so that was my very first one. And cool. then when I went there, then I found that there's other places. There's a place called Story 
story district. It's a place called Better Said Than Done, which I do a lot of stories with. And then I just started kind of reaching out. So there's a place in Baltimore called The Stoop uh, Storytelling Series. There's another place in D.C. called Perfect Liars Club where like four people tell a story. One person's lying. The crowd has to figure out. <laughs> oh, that's that really cool. So that's really fun, right? There's a place down in uh, Roanoke called Hoot and Holler, which I was like, with a name like Hoot and Holler, like I just, I have to go. <laughs> I just have to. There are a number of storytelling organizations in that area where they actually deal with people telling their story of mental health and how they've had to overcome because story has that healing effect. It all has, has that connection effect to where when people see that they, you've made it through something, when you say it out loud and people realize that they're not the only one, they're more likely to, to, to come forward, to get help, to understand that I can make it through this as well. You know, and storytelling is just a great way to connect with people. Many times I've, I've, after I've done with the story and people can relate to something that I've said. And, and that's one of the things that I'm looking to do with a story. I want to tell a story that is relatable for people so they can either see themselves in it or they can understand it from that perspective. And that's, a, that's another sign of an effective story. If I tell a story and you say, like, I, I don't get it. Well, that wasn't effective. So those are so you know as we as I, we kind of come back to like hey what makes a good story an effective story? Yeah. It needs to you need to have a point of change, a point of this is the learning thing, and it doesn't have to you know hit somebody over the head with it, but there should be the main character walked in one way and has come out a different person on this sort of way, and everything else that's going on in there just kind of leads you through the the path of how it kind of got there. Um, and then the last thing from an instructional standpoint, it needs to be relevant to wherever you're. And so that's why I say the stories I tell in class, they ver- they don't pop up. I have a it's collection of stories right? that yeah. I have and I use them just however it needs to be for the class. Uh, but since I've been doing all the different journaling things and things like that and also telling stories, I mean, there are. I probably have about 40 stories that are polished and told. And then I have probably another hundred or so that are just there in various stages of started, not finished or whatever else. And as themes or classes come up, I may kind of finish it and polish it. I love going to the storytelling shows because I, because most of them are like in, in, in theaters or bars or things like that. And my theory is if I can go to there and I can tell a story to people who are half intoxicated and they get it when the next morning I go and I tell the story to people who are fully caffeinated, they too will get it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, I have no idea the state of our audience right now, but uh, can I put you on the spot? Would you be willing to uh, share a story? Uh, let me think of one. Uh, let's see, which one did I do recently? Okay. I'm crammed into this van. It's just, just a bunch of dudes, and we're driving. We're headed toward Pikes Peak, Colorado. And that's when the guy, short guy, dark hair, says, Hey, Nick, tell him about your trip to Texas. I don't want to tell him about my trip to Texas. I don't want nobody to know about my trip to Texas. But he just asked me in front of these people, so I've got to tell him about my trip to Texas. And so... Uh, this takes me back to 1995, and this was back when, uh, and I lived in Colorado, and this is back when it was only known as the Mile High State, not the Get High State. 
And it was there. It didn't really matter to me what it was called because I was only there for one reason. And it was this, to be on the all Air Force wrestling team. And just like I told you earlier, being part of all Air Force wrestling team meant that that was your job. That's all you did. And, and if you were really good, you were sitting there training for the Olympics for two years out and getting your face on that box of Wheaties. Since no one really recognizes me from the box of Wheaties, I think we know how well that it did. But back then, I didn't know. I thought I was going to be good. I thought I had potential. And so as I talked to the wrestling coach, he's like, well, look, I haven't seen you wrestle, but I'm going to a tournament in Texas. Why don't you gather up these two other guys and go to Texas, drive down there, and I'll see what you can do. And I am so excited because a few weeks ago, I just got my driver's license. And never mind that, this is 1995, and I have just bought myself a brand new 1995 Geo Metro. Now, in case your audience member don't understand what that means, so if you take like a regular size sedan, now cut it in half, put a hatchback on the front, and you got my car. And of course, I was in my 20s, so I had to fix it up a little bit. It was red. I tinted the windows. I had 13-inch rims. What am I doing with that? I got 14-inch chrome rims that were powered by a three-cylinder engine. I am so ready for this road trip. And so we leave, and we leave in the morning, um, and it's and it's nice and sunny, and everything looks well, and, and we're all crammed into this car, but of course, it's like this spring going in, it's kind of just winter going in springtime, so the weather changes. So by the time we get into Texas, it is raining. It is cold. It just sucks. But we're all crammed, and we're driving, and this, this really interesting thing happens. I've never seen this before. The rain was hitting the ground and bouncing off. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I've never seen that before in all my extensive driving experience. Now, of course, I realized that's freezing rain. I hadn't thought of that. And apparently neither did the semi-truck that just went speeding by, which is pretty amazing because I've got three cylinders in this thing. Like, how was he keeping up? He goes ahead, the tractor trailer goes ahead, and they're about 100 feet. And then I see the brake lights hit. And then I see it fishtail. So I hit my brakes. And then we fishtail. And then we stop fishtailing because we start spinning. And now we're going around and around and around. And suddenly I felt closer to God than I had been since the last time my mama whooped my tail. Finally, we stop and we stop. We're all on all fours. We're still on the ground uh, and everyone's fine. We all need new underwear, but other than that, we are all fine. And, uh, but I, you know, I've got this pain right here on my right side. It just really hurts a little bit, uh, but I don't worry about it too much. We switch over when the other guys is driving, and the pain is getting worse. It is coming in waves, and I'm doubled over. And luckily, because I'm in the military, we get free care. We got to stop in at the ER. So around Lubbock, Texas, we stop there. I go into the ER room. And, and I'm waiting for the doctor to try to figure out what's going on. The only thing I care about is tomorrow there's a wrestling tournament and we will need to be there. I, we have to be on time. But what if we're not? What if I missed a wrestling tournament? What if I don't get to show this guy this might be my big chance that I've been waiting for? What if he's got to do surgery? So all of this is just uh, it's just painful to think about and the pain is in my side. So I move back and forth and I'm trying to get comfortable and... I raise my right leg 
And I would like to tell you that I, I passed gas. I farted. Oh, my God, I farted. It was massive. It was like I shook and the bed shook and like the whole room shook. It was I couldn't believe that I did that. I could not believe how mortified I was. I couldn't believe that I felt pretty good, actually. And so then I was like, well, this is just me. What would happen if I lift my left leg? And sure enough, I lift it and more comes out. And I am feeling so much better. And just as it's petering out, the doctor walks in. Because that's what happens as you're trying to have a personal moment and you have some, and then someone wants and be right close to you and knows like, "Hi, how are you doing?" And so I told him, "Hey, I um, I think I just passed gas. I think that's all I had." He said, "Oh yeah, sure, that's no problem." So he gave me some gas medicine and that's it. See, that's that's when I knew I was in the Air Force because like a Marine person, an Army person, they would have went in for combat wounds and everything else, and I'm in the ER because I got gas. So we continue on. We get back into the GL Metro and we make our way there. We wake up next morning for the tournament. We walk in and there's hardly anybody there because the tournament got canceled. Apparently there was an ice storm that they thought was too dangerous for people to drive in. And so they didn't want people to risk going there. Uh, and so at this point, as we're sitting there in the van, the same way that some of you may be laughing now, so was everybody in the van. And which time that short guy with the dark hair, the wrestling coach for all wrestling teams had. And that is why I put Nick on the team. And the other guy was like, why? Because he just showed this dedication and, and, and he was just determined to be able to make this work. And he was like, no, if that's the kind of stuff that happens to him on a trip, I want to see what the next funny story is going to be. So there's a story. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. Um, I think uh, I I have learned a lot. Have found some different, definitely found uh, some things that I will implement in my future teaching endeavors for certain. Absolutely, uh, am inspired by your storytelling, and find it to be uh, a truly. I love listening to the moth, for example. I just love the way people can tell a story and, um, and the way you're telling a story. I just love it. And, um, man, I admire that talent. I think it's fantastic. So, Hey, if, uh, if people want to follow you on Instagram and uh, follow your blog, et cetera, uh, you said it once before, but say it again. And, uh, where can people reach out to you? Sure. So the blog is www.stop365.blog. That's www.stop365. 365.blog um, and you can also follow me at Storytelling on Purpose on Facebook, uh, Instagram and on Twitter and, and there as you go through the different uh, pages that I have for the blog there's also a contact there so you'd be able to email me or, or just connect with me and hit me up on the different messengers and things like that so on there besides telling you where all the storytelling shows are, I'll also do articles with different parts of storytelling and things like that. So I talk about beginnings and endings and where they get stories from and places to hear stories. At least if you're particularly, if you're in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, but I even talk about storytelling podcasts. So if you just want to listen to more stories, I have some blog posts about that too. Right on. Well, thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. That's right. Thank you. Special thanks to Nick for sitting down and having that great conversation with us and sharing some of his insight into instruction and storytelling, how they can go together. 
So check out uh, Nick's Instagram. And if you don't already subscribe to and follow uh, Fireground Fitness Podcast, get on uh, whatever platform you subscribe to, whatever whatever platform you follow uh, for your podcast, get on there and subscribe. Wouldn't mind if you got yourself over to iTunes or to Apple Podcast, rate and review the podcast. Give me a feel for what your thoughts are. Uh, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I can be found at Rain Gray at FiregroundFitness.com. I'm all, of course, I'm on Instagram and Facebook uh, at Fireground Fitness uh, as well. All right. Now, go out there, create your own stories, get some.